You're listening to the Mill Sunday School Podcast. We've had the honor, we are going to continue having the honor today and then next week as well, of, of getting messages by David Grothy as he speaks about marriage and family. Does anybody ever want to get married in here? Does anybody have a family? <laughs> These are the Mill Sunday School. We take topics per month, and this topic of marriage and family. Um, I know that I, I wasn't here last week, but the week before, I just got a lot out of that message as Dan, D, uh, D, David Grothy has shared with us. So, um, if you don't know David, if, you, if you're new, if you weren't here last week, you know. He is the New Life Church marriage and family pastor. He's been uh, married for 32, 33 years. 32 years, almost 33. And, and so he's got something to say. He's, he's been, as for the last 13 years before he got his job here at New Life Church, he's been traveling around um, giving uh, marriage and cancer family like seminars that people would have to usually pay for and come to the church. But you all are getting it for free. He is the guy. I've been doing just a few weddings as a pastor. I get to perform weddings. I did one yesterday with a really cool couple, Adam and Whitney. And... Um, as I do premarital counseling, if I have questions and I, I, I see this couple and I'm like, man, this couple's messed up. Well, how do I help them? David Grothy is the man that I call. <laughs> so without further ado, would you please welcome David Grothy? Thank you, Joe. Thank you so much. Yes, we see a lot of messed up couples. Let me just tell you what my wife would say if you were a bunch of parents sitting here today, and I'm going to say it too. Parents, don't mess up your kids. You know, it's true that I can trace back when I, when I talk to a young man or young woman or a couple or even a married couple, quite often the issues that they're facing and dealing with go all the way back to what they saw modeled before them in their home. And I know for me, I shared my story briefly. My mom and dad didn't have a happy marriage. Our home was always full of strife. Uh, there was domestic violence. You know, back then we didn't have that term. In the 60s, they hadn't invented domestic violence. We just called it fighting. And you'd get cut up and bruised up and bleed. So I, I took from that experience, the modeling that was in my home, and would go to bed every night as a kid and say, Lord, when I get married, I would pray, Lord, I'm going to have a happy home. All I want, Lord, is a happy home. And for me, that has been an answered prayer in my life and in my, in my family and my children and in my soon-to-be seven grandchildren. We're just blessed. And today, there's two outlines, one of which has already been pointed to be in error. So, <laughs> no, I, I've, there's been a mistake found on one of my... Uh, Outlines here, but we're going to start and pull up the one that says <clears throat> a, f- a father. Uh, it says uh, the best thing a godly father can do. I'd like to just take you through some ideas. Since it's Father's Day, we won't take long here because there's more information that I want to share with you about <clears throat> making a decision to have a happy home. My wife's going to be, excuse me, with me next week. Becky uh, is the uh, pastor of guest relations here at the church, and she is hosting Guest Central after every one of our services, so she's going to kind of make arrangements to be with me next week and let one of our kids host Guest Central so she can come and share with me about family next week. We're going to talk about uh, next week principles, just some practical ideas to have a happy home. 
and their proven, true, uh, tried and true principles from God's word. And my wife Becky is looking forward to joining me next week with you. But a godly father, some of us have had good examples of fathers. Others of us have had fathers who were absent, fathers who were uh, too busy. My dad worked a minimum, I got to say a minimum of 70, 75 hours a week. He had a full-time job at the, what became Amoco Oil Company. Uh, he worked there all of his life, his career as I was a kid. He worked full-time there and then he'd come, he'd, he'd quit work and go irrigate somebody's yard or uh, exterminate somebody's house or paint or do landscaping or, he always had another job to make some money and and I guess in my mind, as a kid, that always said to me, well, my dad had to work extra to make sure we could have a house or live. Um, I think a lot of it was that he just didn't enjoy being home. He'd rather go out and work than have to come home and, and work at, at home, being a husband and being a father. Some of our dads, though, modeled for us... Uh, excellent principles of, of loving our mothers and giving themselves for her as Christ gave himself for the church. We've been trained by example. Some of you girls have had a dad who has uh, ignored you or worse yet abused you. Some gentlemen in this room have had dads that have shown such excellent respect for their mothers that they don't know any other way to treat a woman other than to respect her and to be kind. Uh, we've got a balance and a, and a variety of all kinds of examples before us. But here's my six ideas about a father's job description. If you want to put a title on this one page, I'm just going to give you a father's job description very briefly. The best thing a dad can do is to live an, as an example before them. And by God's grace, the pattern of sin can be stopped in a family. I don't know about your family, but sin was a perpetual thing in my family. Death was a perpetual thing. The only thing my dad ever told me about his father was that he killed himself after the family farm had burned. And took a shotgun and just took his life at 30 years old. My dad had not finished the 8th grade. He dropped out of the 8th grade, never finished school, went to work taking care of his mother and his little brother. And so I think about my grandfather sometimes, who I never met, that had taken his own life. It was interesting. I had, as a kid, I had this one picture of my dad leading me through the cemetery in Knox County, Nebraska. He was from Nebraska, and we, I was raised in Oklahoma. My dad discharged out of the service, came to Tulsa. But he took me to this graveyard in his hometown, and I remember seeing this one little square stone about 12 by 12, it just said my grandpa's name on it and the dates he was born, the date he died. And I just kind of had this picture of standing in a graveyard at like nine, nine years old seeing this thing. Well, I took my kids on a, we were on a kind of a family month vacation and we were in Idaho. We went to Yellowstone and back across to Rapid City and all the way across South Dakota to Yankton and turned south on Highway 81 and crossed the Missouri River right into the county where my dad was born and raised. And I remembered telling myself, I'm going to kind of take my kids back here. I've only been there four times in my life. And the last time I'd been there was when my wife and I were engaged. I, I took her up there to kind of meet Grandma Grothy. I'd only seen her three other times in my life. And I wanted to go and see her. So I took my kids. We drove into this little town, Bloomfield, Nebraska. 
And I, I said to myself, I need to find somebody in the town who knows a little bit about, you know, maybe even burial records, if, if somebody could show me the cemetery records. I went to the post office, parked in front of the post office, and I opened the door just as this guy was coming out with a load of mail and boxes. <clears throat> and I was going to go in there to the post office to see where I should go. And this guy walks out and trips on the door, the window, the, the door jam, the, the facing, and he falls in the sidewalk and drops all of his mail. He had this big handful of boxes. And I helped him pick it up, and, and I said, oh, I'm so sorry, sir. He said, it's fine, it's fine, my fault. And, he, and I asked him, I just said, do you know where I should go to find out the town records? Who's, who's the city record keeper? And he just looked at me and said, follow me. And this guy with the mail walks around the corner and into the next shop and opens the door. And I look up and it said, uh, City Hall. And it's a little town. And he walks in, opens another door, goes through a door, and then comes to a window and raises the shade and puts on this hat. It's kind of like Mayberry, you know. And he said, how can I help you? I'm the city clerk. And I said, well, great. I've... My father's family is from here, and I'm just wondering, uh, are there some records or some, you know, I'm, I'm going to go to the t- cemetery. And he said, oh, yeah. And he pulls out this book from underneath the counter, and he throws it on the counter, and it falls open. It's this loose-leaf book. He said, we had our centennial last year, 100th anniversary of the town, and, and they just put this publication together with all the town fathers and founders and pictures, and it fell open right in front of me on this counter to a a, a tin-type picture from the late 1800s. And there is my great-great-grandfather and his eight children. My grandfather's one of those boys standing in. and And I saw this picture for the very first time. I'd never seen anything like it. And that book was full of photographs and information of my family that I'd never known about. And he said, here in the back, by the way, they've got every plot and every burial, every uh, cemetery burial listed from 1860. And uh, your family's probably in there somewhere. So we went up to the cemetery. And I'm walking through the cemetery, and, and it was a classic upper Midwest cemetery. You go down the main center drive, and over here is the Catholic cemetery. And over here is the Lutheran cemetery. That's it. Lutherans and Catholics, all are buried there. And so I'm looking through, and I found Grandma. Her name is Anna Rains Grothy. She's buried over here in the Lutheran Cemetery with a little baby brother. My dad had also told me this, that my grandmother at 16 married an older Catholic boy, and her family disowned her. Lutherans and Catholics didn't mix. And then... My Lutheran grandmother took her two boys to the Lutheran church when they were young and had them baptized Lutheran. And then her Catholic husband kind of went, okay, you and the boys want to be Lutherans? Be Lutherans. So over here, I'm over here with my grandmother's headstone, and off in the distance I hear my son Daniel. Dad! Dad, get over here, quick! Dad, come here! And he's, you know... 17 years old at the time. And we walk over, and and he's standing in this row of massive Gothic headstones. Catholic headstones, big crosses, row after row after. And he said, look at these. And every one of them are growthies. Growthy, 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 growthy. 
And he said, Dad, these are all our dead relatives. And I'd never seen them. And at the end of the line, big German epitaphs in these Catholic headstones. And at the end of the line of these gigantic stones, I saw that thing I hadn't seen since I was nine years old, the little 12 by 12 block of the one growthy that had committed suicide. You know, honor, 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 big stones, dishonor, a little flat stone. I remember that story. My dad just, that's the only thing he ever told me. Yeah, my dad shot himself when I was 13. When I was 15, my dad, working in the oil fields, was killed in an explosion. Nine men were drilling a hole and doing some testing with liquid explosive and trying to open up the oil formations down in the geography and the geological masses below the surface. And the entire thing exploded before it got in the hole. Nine men died, including my father. I, was, I just turned 15. My mother had been sick. Uh, four years later, after high school and my first year of college, she uh, suffered a recurrence of a brain tumor and basically was very disabling. And uh, She was in a, in a, in a very, very uh, invalid care situation. I had to provide some care for her. I was just turned 19. And then she laid down one afternoon and just went to heaven. I had prayed with her about 60 days before that, before the surgery. She had never gone to church with me. My father had never gone to church, never really professed necessarily a a relationship with God. Although I do remember seeing my father pray one time. But I knew that my mother and father never had a happy home. Being married 21 years when he was killed and then four years later she passed. And I got to that point in my life where all of a sudden at 19, I began to be consumed with this thought, how am I going to die? My father's family, untimely death, suicide. My father's little brother had had a car accident. He was drinking and gambling and had just kind of this addiction. And one day after losing so much money at the track, he was drunk going home and ran off in the ditch. And the accident paralyzed him from the waist down. And in his hospital bed, moved home. He wrapped a cord around his neck there, some sort of extension cord into the bed, and then rolled himself out committed suicide there in his own bed. So I've got all these growthy men that have died untimely, tragic kind of deaths. And I'm thinking, how am I going to die? My mother's family, I can remember going from sick bed to sick bed, going to say goodbye to relatives who were dying. My mother's little sister died at 34 of a heart murmur. My mother of a brain tumor. Her little sister of the exact same medical condition, a brain tumor. All of my grandmother's three daughters preceded her in death. I buried my grandmother at 97. But her husband died early, prematurely. My my maternal grandfather. I just had a lot of untimely sickness over here on this side of the family. And over here, untimely, tragic death. And I'm consumed now with the thought, at 19 years old, how am I going to die? It began to just eat away at my thinking and my heart. And I never told anybody. I had started to date Becky a a little bit. We'd been out a few times and had had some time together. But I never shared with her what I was thinking. I was at a prayer meeting uh, at my roommate's 
parents' church, they had a little church that they pastored. My roommate had taken me home from college at ORU to his home for a long weekend. And we were at a prayer meeting, just not even a Sunday service. And I was knelt, knelt down over here to the side of the platform, just kind of at the corner of the front of the stage. And I was kneeling praying when I heard this voice behind me say, the curse which has been over your family has stopped with your generation. The most clear voice, Mrs. Barton, the pastor's wife, she didn't shout, she didn't cry, she just said, the curse which has been on your family has stopped with your generation. And she quoted Galatians chapter 3. I never really read it, but Galatians 3, 13 and 14 says, Christ has redeemed us from the curse, being made a curse for us. For it's written, cursed is every man that hangs upon a tree, that the blessing of Abraham might come on those who believe. And I didn't realize it until that moment, but my family, the sin which had been present and never dealt with, kind of the sin nature, things that lead ultimately, sin ultimately ends up in death, spiritual death. But in my case, it had been a physical death as well as a spiritual death that I had seen and been modeled before me. And from that night forward, I got it from that place of prayer. And from that night till this morning, I have never again thought about dying. I've never again been afraid of death. It's never consumed my thoughts. I've been set free from the whole idea. As a matter of fact, realizing that Christ has made us free. And Jesus came that we might have it abundantly. And it has been centered in God's word. Broken and a godly heritage can be established. Number one, a father, if you would like to write this note, a father is tender and kind. A father is tender and kind. How do we know that? Psalm 103 says it. Verse 13. Father is tender and kind to his children in the same way. The Lord is tender and kind to those that have respect for him, those that fear him. Apostle Paul wrote it this way. Now, 1 Thessalonians 2, 11 and 12, he writes, Paul says, As you know how we exhorted you, comforted you, and charged every one of you as a father does his children. Paul is saying, we loved you like this in the church, just like a father does his own kids, that you would walk worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and his own glory. So number two, a father encourages I have a a friend who's a pastor of the church where we had served and attended back in Tulsa. And Billy Joe Darty was kind of an athlete, football star, football scholarship in college, ran track. And he tells a story of of how the gun went off and he's running this sprint, kind of a long race, really. One lap around, whatever that is, 220, 440, I don't remember. But as he came out of the blocks, he heard over here in the stands... Run, Billy Joe, run! Go, son, go, son! Let's go, boy! He could hear his dad cheering him on from the stands. So he's running. He gets around the first turn, the second turn. Goes down that back stretch and gets to the third turn. All of a sudden he hears it. Go, Billy Joe, go! Son, run! And he, but this time he hears it from this ear. He heard it from the stands over here. And now his father's down in the infield just running as fast as he can. Alongside. Go, son, go! You can do it! And he said, I was so embarrassed, I thought, I've got to run faster than him just to get out of here. <laughs> and he won, and his, but his father came out of the stands and is cheering him on from the infield. Now, a father encourages. What are you saying to your children, fathers? What, what's the message that you're sending? Oh, you'll never mount to anything. You're as dumb as a rock. And, and I think many fathers belittle 
their, their children, hoping to shame them into obedience or hoping to shame them into performance. Belittling and shaming is not a father's role. Paul said, we encouraged you. And number three, a father comforts. Notice, Paul said it this way. This is the message, same passage. With each of you, we were like a father with his child. For exhorted, the message says, holding your hand. For comforted, whispering encouragement. And showing you, charged you, showing you step by step how to live well before God who called you. Number four, a father brings discipline. Hebrews, the fourth chapter, is a wonderful passage for all of us to be trained, to be changed and challenged. Here's what he says in Hebrews 12. The Lord disciplines those he loves. He punishes each one of us that he accepts as his child. And if you endure divine discipline, remember that God is treating you as his own children. Now, some parents, I've taught this lesson of discipline for children, and I, we've, we've taught, you know, raising little children and dealing with adults and uh, adolescent children and children that are maturing. And I've had mothers walk up to me and say, well, I love my kids too much to spank them. I love my kids too much to discipline them. Well, that's not what the Bible says. He says, whoever heard of a child who is never disciplined by its father? Verse 8. If God doesn't discipline you, you're not his children at all. It means that you're illegitimate and that you're not really his children. Since, he respected, since we respected our earthly fathers who disciplined us, shouldn't we submit even more to the discipline of God, the father of our spirits, and live forever? Verse 10, Hebrews uh, chapter 12. For our earthly fathers disciplined us for a few years, doing the best they knew how. I can remember being spanked by my dad two times. Both, both of those times in anger. I'd either spouted off or said something smart or been surprised from behind and, and gotten spanked because of my attitude. But just twice, and those two times were enough for me to remember. <laughs> but I can remember lots and lots of discipline sessions with my mom where I either was paying a price or need to go bend over the bed so I could get spanked. Or, you know, some go sit in your room or you know, whatever the discipline was. There's all sorts of models of discipline. It just means, though, God's discipline is always good for us so that we might share in his holiness. No discipline is enjoyable, in verse 11, while it's happening. We know that. We just hate it when we get set straight. And really, discipline mean, or correction means to make straight. If you, if you want a, a good definition, disciple is kind of the root word of discipline. To, to be a disciple, to be disciplined, to make straight paths. It's painful, but afterward there is a peaceful harvest of right living. King James says, a peaceable harvest of righteousness. That's the goal in any loving discipline that is administered by a father. And it pays off for those of us who are trained this way. Number five, a father teaches his children the fear of the Lord. I can remember at grandparents' house, I'd, I'd, I'd hear something like this, we need to put the fear of God in them kids, you know. And that usually meant a spanking. The fear of God. Well, here's what the fear of the Lord is. It's a definition that I love 
I mean, you know, the beginning of wisdom, the beginning of knowledge, the begin- you know, we know what the fear of the Lord is a lot of different places in the book of Proverbs. But here in verse 13 of Proverbs 8, it says this. The fear of the Lord is to hate evil. Here is the basic tenet of teaching children the fear of the Lord. Evil and hate it. Not hating people, but we hate evil because it is sin. We know that it's sin that separated man from God initially. Teaching our children to hate evil. It's more than just right and wrong. It's to take God's side against sin. That's what the the fear of the Lord is. To teach children that it is sin that takes us away from God in our life. Children need to know more than just right or wrong. He says, I hate pride, arrogance, evil behavior, and perverse speech. The fear of the Lord is to hate evil. So if you want to have the fear of God in your life, you take God's side against sin and evil in your own life. You, you will not tolerate it. You're going to live a holy life free from sin, free from evil. You're going to say, the fear of the Lord in my life is going to, to lead me away from evil and in paths of righteousness. The 26th verse of Proverbs 14 says this, He who fears the Lord has a secure fortress. And for his children... Here it is, fathers. Father's job description. For his children, that fear, that that trust in God will be a refuge, a secure fortress. So in teaching our children the fear of the Lord, we're making a safe place for them. I I came over a little late today because my daughter said, Dad, you've got to stay in the service. You've got to stay in the service. I said, why? I'm going to be in the second service. He said, well, just stay. So it's Father's Day, and they did one of those Father's Day videos, and it's very nice. And my four kids are there laughing at their dad. And, and very nicely honoring their father, too. But um, I think it's important that children know what the fear of the Lord is. And it's more than just a spanking. It's more than just discipline. It's an on-purpose, overt communication of righteousness and evil, good and evil, light and darkness, right and wrong, yeah, all that stuff. There are still people who are grown-ups that have not grasped the idea of the fear of the Lord, and it's ruined their life. Their life has hit shipwreck. Their life has been uh, turned upside down because of a lack of embracing the fear of the Lord. Finally, Proverbs 4.26, I love this translation of 14.26. The fear of the Lord, the fear of God builds up confidence and makes a world safe for your children. My wife and I thought about, before we got married, how many kids we wanted to have. She was one of five born to Dan and Louise Wilson in northern Idaho. She had one of her, uh, her older uh, no, her survived. Some did not. Four kids, her mom and dad. My mother and father had one. And for that reason, and her reason, we wanted to have a large family. She enjoyed that. I desired it. But after uh, three and a half years of marriage, and Becky went to the doctor in her fourth and a half month to be checked up, she was complaining of such discomfort. And the doctor would say, oh, you're going to be fine, Becky. She would call, Doc, I'm just so uncomfortable, I can't hardly stand up out of bed. I'm, and he was saying, it's your first pregnancy, Becky, you'll be fine. 
And so when he saw her at four and a half months, he said, oh my goodness, there's a problem. Or, or you have twins. And she was nine months size there in the four and a half months. And uh, they, they diagnosed later that afternoon twins. And uh, I always wanted to have a big family. Nineteen months after the twins were delivered, Daniel was born. And we had three in diapers for a good while. It was an adventure and a wonderful joy. But we decided we will take a break a little while. So we always knew there would be another child, but we waited five years and Anna was born. She's 21 now. And we, we thought we were going to have five at the outset, but when they started coming two at a time, we kind of rethought that. You know, we could have 10 kids here. So, and we're not Catholic anymore. We'd all be Catholic if it wasn't for Martin Luther. You know that. Okay. And finally, a father, you'll get that later. A father <laughs> makes it easier. Number six, a father makes it easier for his children. Now, that may sound very carnal to you. That may, Well, yeah, we always want more for our kids than we had. I want, my, I want better for my children. I think your parents, uh, something down deep in their heart probably said that. But here's what the verse says from the message. I'm sorry, New Living, Proverbs 20 and verse 7. The godly walk with integrity and blessed are their children who follow them. Parents who don't have integrity do not bring a blessing to their children. They bring the exact opposite. But here's what the message says, Proverbs 20 and verse 7. God-loyal people, living honest lives, make it much easier for their children. So, I'll finish this part with what I said earlier. Parents, don't mess up your kids. Don't make it hard for them. Don't impose your selfishness upon your children. Your selfishness in your marriage relationship. Your selfishness in your own personal desires to have stuff and live your life. And, and, and children are going to cramp my style. And you know I'm not going to be able to have all the stuff and time that I want to have. There are parents who look at their children as a burden. But the scripture and the truth of scripture teaches us that Psalm 127, 128, that children are a blessing and not a burden. They are the reward of the Lord. The fruit of the womb is his reward. So having children needs to be put in its proper perspective. It is God's plan to populate the earth with godly offspring, Malachi 2. That was God's plan from the beginning. And now for us to look at it any other way in a selfish way is, um, is an inappropriate view of the truth of God's word. Very quickly, in the middle of the Bible, I just quoted them to you, Psalm 127 and 128. Let's read them. Don't you see that children are God's best gift? This is Psalm 127, verse 3 through 5 in the message. Or maybe New Living. Don't you see that children are God's best gift? The fruit of the womb is his legacy. Like a warrior's fistful of arrows are the children of a vigorous youth. Oh, how blessed are you parents with your quivers full of them. A quiver. Arrow carrier. A guy that carried arrows, he'd pull one out of his quiver and shoot it. Children are likened to that. Think about this for a minute. I never really dreamed about how this would play out in, in our own life. Our children become like arrows in our life. They're, they're there. They're they become even a source of not just pride, but 
spiritual life and protection in your life. Oh, how blessed are you parents with your quivers full of them. Psalm 128, verse 3 through 6, listen to this. Your wife will be like a fruitful vine flourishing within your home. And look at all those children. There they sit around your table as vigorous and healthy as young olive trees. That is the Lord's reward for those who fear him. May you live to enjoy your grandchildren. 32 years ago this summer, we were just coming up on 32 years, Becky and I got married. And I never dreamed 32 years later that I would have four beautiful children, three beautiful sons-in-laws and daughter-in-law, seven beautiful grandchildren, five of which I know their names, I think I know the name of the sixth one. Daniel can tell you when he's ready. And another granddaughter, Christine just went and she's going to have her third daughter. She just found out this week. So we'll have two grandsons and five granddaughters. I never dreamed that would be a a part of the reward of my life 32 years later. But it most certainly, just take my word for it. I've heard grandparents joke, and and Becky's folks did when our kids started coming. You know, oh, grandchildren, beautiful thing, you know. Get to send them back home after you play with them. (laughs) And, and, you know, that's funny, but the, the reality of it is for me, seeing my children become parents is the most rewarding thing I've ever experienced. Watching my son, watching my daughters, now embrace the responsibility and the privilege of their own children. Grandchildren are a great blessing and, and make no mistake, I am an active grandparent. I'm going to be involved in my grandchildren's life. I'm going to be, I am there. I love them, I read to them, I work with them, I take them for, you know, we have a lot of fun together. We keep them overnight. We, we do stuff that parents can't do because parents often are involved in the discipline side of things and in the fear of the Lord side of things and in teaching the correction, you know. And parent, grandparents can go and supersede that and teach social skills and interaction and conversation and, and, and enjoying people. So, the passages tell us that I've just referenced two things. That a good family life is a reward from God. Do you want to have God's reward in your family? Are you ready to have a reward from the Lord? And it's not like, you know, air miles. You get to use them and they're blackout dates. They're not like natural rewards. Reward from the Lord is a spiritual gift that lasts for eternity. I'm also reminded that a prudent wife, he says this, is from the Lord. And it's a blessing to find her and obtain God's favor. I shared last week some of those truths about whoever finds a wife finds a good thing. Guys... You may have it good now. You may, your life may be smooth and, and wonderful, but just wait. You haven't experienced the favor of God in the degree and in the abundance that you're going to when you find your wife. It's something to look forward to. It's something to believe for. You can't buy God's favor. You cannot earn it. It's just a gift. And it comes as a result of being involved in His Word and believing Him to be true. All too often, some take their spouse for granted. Well, you know, we said some words and got married, but now it's just, you know, living life, working and paying bills. There's a lot to be said to endure 
I love it when somebody has that characteristic of endurance and steadfastness and faithfulness. But you don't just have to endure a marriage. You can enjoy it. And you need to believe God to be able to enjoy your marriage and not just endure as roommates for the rest of your sad life. The thing about a roommate is you can change roommates. You can move. You can ask them to leave. Your spouse is not your roommate. Your spouse is the one you said forever until death. I do. I will. And you say it every morning. You say it every week. You say it every month. I do. I will. And I want to say this. We shouldn't be guilty of viewing our family as an inconvenience in our lives. I'm going to say this especially to men today. But there are some women that I've encountered that have been so career-minded and so uh, activity-minded or so fitness-conscious that their family has completely taken a back seat to their goals and ideas and identity. Our family should never be viewed as an inconvenience when God values them so highly. So you get God's perspective of your spouse. You take God's perspective of children, what they are in reality, a reward from Him. And you'll view them differently, not as a burden, but as a blessing, not as an inconvenience. Yes, there are frustrations to be addressed. Every month, every year, there are frustrations that will have to be addressed. What is it about a Christian family that's different? Well, you have the same problems, you just look at them differently. You have God's perspective of trusting Him for all your need. But in the middle of the Psalms, we've read these, that the home is a refuge for a haven in this earthly life. Our home should become the place that we look forward to being, that we look forward to enjoying that warmth and that security of, of a love, not just a romantic love, although that, there's, nothing to, there's nothing to substitute for that, but as a long-term trust. It gives you such confidence to know that you can come home and shut the door and you have people there that love and trust you. I said this to my wife and it's become a motto in our whole family. We were, man, we were navigating through a very difficult time in ministry. Our children were in school, Christian school. Becky had been the principal of the Christian school there that we started in 1979. I was full-time on the staff. I was involved in pastoral work and music ministry and worship pastor at our church for 17 years. And things in the church were just in an upheaval. There was, some, there was a teacher that had come more than once and had shared some really false doctrine. And, and you know the whole every wind of doctrine thing was blowing through our church and people were becoming kind of restless and offended and taking sides and it was ugly. And this one teacher was responsible for all of it and Eventually, I just told him one day, I said, you know, I called him on the phone. Or he called me, as a matter of fact. He heard that I had said, if he comes to speak again, I will not be there. Kind of taking a little militant stand, you know. I, I will not have my children exposed to this teaching. And so this evangelist calls me. said, I hear you have a little problem with me. I said, yes, and, and I'm glad you called. He said, well, what's your problem? I said, well, I think you're teaching in error. And I think your doctrine is wrong and you've sown division and discord among the brethren, which, by the way, God hates. And besides all that, I think you're effeminate. And I think you're a homosexual. 
Oh, I have a girlfriend. What, what, what? I have a girlfriend. Just, you can call. Well, I said, well, thank you for calling. You're, I wouldn't have said all this had you not called and asked me. But since you called, I think I'll tell you. And you have sown discord in this church. And you have brought something that is ungodly. Well, I am sad to say that what everything I told him in a few three or four years became public knowledge. And it was a disgrace and it was a blemish on the body of Christ and it was a sad day. Because that was a young man that had come right out of our congregation, right out of our Christian school and had been, you know, very much publicized and in the news and nationally known as a speaker and teacher and evangelist. But what he had brought to our family and our church, church family, was very troubling. And Becky and I would come home and just labor in kind of hurt on the couch. I remember one night we were just crying because it was so sad. You know, people were believing all this stuff that had been taught. And it was a, you know, quite honestly, it was a mistake. He never should have been given a microphone. Well, maybe he should have, but he was given a microphone too soon. The Bible says a lot about putting someone up, a novice up, before they're ready because lest they be lifted up in pride, they would fall. So this is exactly what happened. Somebody had to repent for all that. But I laid on my couch with my wife one night after church on a Sunday night and I just held her as she cried because it was so sad what was happening. Our, our dearest friends were being separated from us because of all this, doctrinally and lifestyle. And I just held her and I said, Becky, as long as everything is okay at 10705 South 85th East Avenue, Tulsa, Oklahoma 74133, nothing else really matters. We lived in two houses since then. As long as everything's okay at 8611 East 98th Street. As long as everything's okay at 4860 Turquoise Lake. Everything's going to be alright. Nothing else really matters. And I want to tell you, your business problems, your frustrations with the financial situation, your relationship issues outside your you know, business contact, whatever it is that's it's on your plate issues wise. As long as everything's okay at home, everything else is going to be alright. I promise you this. Don't let your marriage be affected by the problems and issues that others are imposing upon your life. Don't let the world system and, and even people in church and, and, and misunderstandings and relationship issues cause your family to be adversely affected. Now, the book of Joshua says it this way in Joshua twenty four fifteen: If it seem evil unto you to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve. Joshua had, had followed and succeeded Moses. He's now taken them into the promised land. And he's leaving. This is his farewell speech. He's gone. He, he knows it's the end of his life. I love that about the Old Testament. They have so many final speeches from all the great men. You, know, uh, they, you hear their last words. And here's Joshua's. He said, choose today whom you'll serve. Either the gods back there where we were in slavery or the gods that are here in this land. Or just, but you've got to choose. And he says, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Joshua was pushing us even this morning back to the basic choices that make our life what it is. The most basic choice of all. The choice that lingers from generation to generation. Who will you serve? Choose this day whom you will serve. 
Men and women both together in this room today have got to make a choice that will last not only for your lifetime, but for the generation that's going to follow you. Now, you've heard it said God has no grandchildren, but God is a generational God. He had Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Jacob's. We had it on as a trivia here. Youngest son, Benjamin. It's a generational blessing. Paul told it this way to Timothy. He said, Timothy, I saw this faith that you have in your grandmother and in your mother. Your, your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice are back and forth. He, he had a generational faith that was passed along even from the maternal side of his family. It is the choice of whom would be their God. And if you have it, let me say this to you male folks. If you have it right about God, everything else will find its place. If you'll make right choices about God and serving God, everything else in your life will find its place. Pastor Brent Parsley quoted this morning from uh, Matthew chapter 6 as we were worshiping God this morning. He, he stood up and read, Seek first the kingdom and his righteousness. First of all. And then all these other things will be added unto you. Joshua's words speak to us today. Make a choice today. What kind of choice are you going to make about your family? What is going to be the kind of lifestyle you will lead with your spouse? What does the, the fear of God mean to you? What does right living look like to you? What are the right choices that are going to affect not only your success as a couple, but the children that will follow you and look to you for leadership and example? It's a sobering thought, but it's a wonderful responsibility. To me, it doesn't scare me. It challenges me. It sobers me a little bit to say, hey, it's kind of on me. It, I'm carrying something here from the Lord forward that's going to affect my children and now my seven grandchildren. It's going to be a wonderful blessing that carries through. Charles Wesley, although maybe not the founder of Methodism, was there at the beginning. And later, his principles, the Wesleyan principles, there's a separate church called the Wesleyan Church. But they wrote so much of the hymnology and so much of the doctrine that is carried forward into Methodism. He said it this way. It is my firm purpose that I will, and my children, as far as I can influence them. How far can a father and a mother influence their children? How, how much influence can we have? I believe that God has called and equipped parents to have all the influence they need in a godly way to model lifestyle and belief. He said that as far as I can influence, they shall be constant and faithful to the Lord and that whatever others do, it sounds like Joshua to me, you choose, but as for me, whatever others do, they that are bound for heaven must be willing to swim against the stream and must do, not as most do, but as the best do. Make the best choice. The, you know, you've heard it said in a cliche that the, the greatest enemy of God's best is something very good in your life. There's good, better, and best. And the enemy of God's best in your life is going to be something very good. I mean, it may not be even sinful. But are you going to make a choice that will influence your family with God's best? Not just acceptable. But I want God's best for my family. Now, the last verse that I've shared with you on, on that outline is Deuteronomy. And I want to read the entire 19th and 20th verse, then we're going to pray. Today, I've given you the choice. 
The choice between life and death, between blessing and curses. Now I call on heaven and earth to witness the choice you make. Oh, that you would choose life so that you and your descendants. There are people that are going to follow after you. It's sobering for me. I didn't think much about it 32 years ago. But I knew they would come. I knew there would be children. I hoped there would be grandchildren. It's been exceedingly abundantly above more than I could have hoped, asked, or dreamed about. Ephesians 3.20 in my life. According to the power that's working in me, it's been more than I ever dreamed. He says, Oh, that you would live. Choose life so that you and your descendants might live. You can make the choice by loving the Lord your God, obeying Him, and committing yourself firmly to Him. This is the key to your life. And if you love and obey the Lord, you'll live long in the land the Lord swore to give your ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I'm thinking about my family. David, Christine, her husband David, Taylor, Hunter, another little girl coming. I think about me, David, my son Daniel, his daughter Lillian, and his son to be born the last week of August. I think about my daughter Jessica, David, and Jessica, and Brad, and Braden, and Emma. I think about David and Anna and her husband-to-be, and their children. This is a generational calling that we carry in families. And I want you to sober up a little bit and think about, Lord, what do you have for me in my future? I'm going to make the choice for you today and trust you with my future and believe that you're going to do more than I could even ask for and even dream for because your power is working in me. That's the family that he has for us. Let's pray for our families right now. Lord, we thank you. That you've called us singularly. Even if our family before us has served you or has not followed you. Lord, even in this generation now, we draw the line of the blood of Christ in our lives. And we thank you from this moment forward. You've got a good plan for us. Plans for good and not for evil. Plans to give us a future and a hope. We pray right now, Lord, for our spouse. We pray for that one that you've called us to walk with. We may not know their name. But right now, Lord, we call their life before you. We thank you for leading us in the path of righteousness for your name's sake. And Lord, for children that are going to follow, this is your blessing. And we ask now that you would prepare us to receive your blessing as we serve you and love you, as we follow you and obey you, as we walk in your way and make the choice as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Let it be so in the mill, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you all. Happy Father's Day. Call your father. Yeah, let's thank uh, Pastor Grothy for that message. Did you learn something this morning? Were you encouraged? I sure was. Well, you are dismissed. We will see you next week. Uh, Pastor David and his wife will be here next week. So we'll see you then.